Thank you for downloading from the Great Commission Society. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. You can find out more about our global ministry and team at www.greatcommissionsociety.com. John the Evangelist wrote these words about love. Dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us, and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. There's a story about a rich Dutch merchant who was seeking to buy a diamond of a certain kind to add to his collection. A famous dealer in New York found such a stone and called him to come and see it. The merchant flew immediately to New York, where the seller had assigned his best diamond experts to close the transaction. After hearing the assistant describe in perfect technical detail the diamond's worth and beauty, the Dutchman decided not to buy it. Before he left, however, the owner of the store stepped forward and asked, Do you mind if I show you that stone once more? The customer agreed. The store owner didn't repeat one thing that the salesman had said. He simply took the stone in his hand, stared at it, and described the beauty of the stone in a way that revealed why this stone stood out from all the others he had seen in his life. The customer bought it immediately. Tucking his new purchase into his pocket, the customer commented to the owner, Sir, I wonder why you were able to sell me this stone when your salesman couldn't. The owner replied, That salesman is the best in the business. He knows more about diamonds than anyone, including myself, and I pay him a large salary for his knowledge and expertise, but I would gladly pay him twice as much if I can put into him something I have which he lacks. You see, he knows diamonds, but I love them. You see, when it comes to sharing Christ with others, the issue is not how much we know about Jesus, but how much we love him. God is not interested in how much we know, but in how much we love. When we truly love Jesus, we love others as well. And that is how the good news of the gospel is spread. Jesus Christ continues to be the most significant figure in history, with about one-third of the world's total population reporting to be Christian. However, annual statistics show a rapid decline in the number of people attending churches. What stops churches from growing and what is causing this rapid decline? Hello and welcome to our GCS podcast with international evangelist and author Tony Anthony. Seemingly every other week there is another story of churches closing up shop, sold to developers to be converted into condominiums or the latest trendy bar. Belief in the secular gods such as atheism and humanism continue to grow, making it critical for Christians to proclaim the gospel. What is your reaction when you consider the consequence of false gospels and the millions of people who have never heard and understood the true gospel? What questions should the church be asking to tackle this problem? Are there definitive reasons why churches stop growing? Let's join Tony as he talks about the rise and spread of false gospels and examines the harmful consequences of a church that has stopped proclaiming the true 
Gospel. James Cameron's 1998 fictional romantic film depiction of the doomed Titanic captured the hearts of millions. Even the few who have never seen the multi-award winning movie recognise that certain scene and that certain song. Breaking all box office records, it frames a historical event and a compelling love story, thoroughly engaging the audience in what we know to be a real-life tragedy. Whilst many flocked to the cinemas in admiration of DiCaprio and Winslet, they left their eyes open to the utter horror of that ill-fated 1912 voyage. RMS Titanic was designed by highly experienced engineers using the most advanced technology of the time. Such faith undergirded its build that it said lifeboats were attached more for decoration than for the purpose of saving lives in a disaster. Indeed, the Titanic was described as unsinkable. Yet shortly before midnight, four days into the ship's maiden voyage, Titanic hit an iceberg and the unthinkable happened. The sinking resulted in the death of 1,517 of the 2,223 people on board. There are simply not enough lifeboats, and the film depicts all too graphically the dreadful scenes of people thrashing around in the icy water, grabbing hold of pieces of floating wood or anything that would keep them afloat a little longer. Who can forget those catastrophic scenes? Jack and Rose's final moments before he is overcome by hypothermia, the Irish mother trying to tell her children a story as their cabin fills of water, another mother soothing her children to sleep, knowing they're all doomed. Few can watch this film without a dry eye or without a stab of outrage at the injustice of a system that saved first-class passengers, leaving other women, children and the lower classes to their doom. Are we outraged? Are our souls desperate to scream at the injustice of those who put their comfort before the lives of others? I don't think it's a step too far to see some comparison here with the world and the church. Aren't we all thrashing about, grasping at fragments that we believe will give us security? our bank accounts, our respectability, our good job, our nice home? And don't we, as Christians, know the real truth about what alone can ultimately save us? Don't we have the lifeboats? Yes, we have the solution to the curse of death. Then why are we so reluctant to share? Is it that, like the upper-class bigots of the Titanic, we don't want the personal discomfort of sharing our life raft? Is it that our faith is indeed shipwrecked, as we read in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 19? Remember those in the film who refused to cram their precious vessel full because it might be uncomfortable for them. Yet, what did it mean for those who didn't get on a boat? We know the answer, don't we? You know, previously we've touched on this whole idea of the state of the world evangelism. And, you know, church attendance is in steep decline as a direct result of such a small percentage of the Christians actually proclaiming the gospel. It's also easy to understand when statistics and media reports show a decline in belief in God among the general population. There's no question about this, but the debate to be had here is is why. The church may be in decline, but it's not dead. There are real free Christians in our communities, people who believe the gospel, loving people who'd want to see others saved. So what's going wrong? If the church is in decline, it's not a coincidence, it's a consequence of blindness reluctance or just plain ignorance of not proclaiming the gospel. There's a particular church group in my hometown that does a phenomenal job reaching out to our community through a feeding programme. Like any town or city in Britain, there's a significant problem of homelessness, and the Christians in this church serve these people by making nutritious soup and taking it out to those in need. These people see Christ at work through these Christians, and as such are ripe and ready to give their lives to Jesus. 
When I first heard of this programme, I was very excited and joined a group of others who wanted to go along and see them in action. It was a wonderful thing to see so many people being fed and responding to the warmth and love of the Christians who were serving them. There was the opportunity to talk and sometimes even pray, and on some occasions Christians handed out pieces of literature, you know, gospel tracts. This was fantastic to witness, but I was curious about one thing. The church people talked about this work as evangelism. But when I asked about how and when they actually proclaimed the gospel, there was confusion between us. No, no, this is how we evangelise, they told me. We just make soup and give it to someone who's hungry. We don't do much proclaiming of the gospel, because we thought you people do that. (laughs) You know, to which I might have replied, well, no, we're not doing it because we thought you're doing it. Do you see my point? There's this tendency in church to assume that someone else is doing it. There's also, I perceive, a very little accountability when it comes to proclaiming the gospel. Many of us are accountable in other areas of our Christian lives. You know, at least on some level, we tithe, we turn up at church on Sunday, you know, on time, we wear the appropriate clothing, we sing the right songs, we're in the right relationships, you know, but in terms of spreading the gospel in our daily lives, no one holds us accountable in that area. You know, when did your pastor, your priest, your vicar or elder last encouragingly ask you how much and to whom you share the gospel? I mean, most of our leaders would have no idea whether people in their congregations are proclaiming the gospel or not. Imagine how our approach to the Great Commission would change if we had a Great Commission offering, for example, in the same way as we handle our tithing and monetary giving. I mean, what if every week at church a basket was passed around Nothing to do with money, but to collect maybe pieces of paper, you know, from each person, you know, just highlighting the number of people that we shared the gospel with that week. How many gospel tracts would we give out, for example? How many conversations did we have? It doesn't matter what number that encourages that participation. You know, there needn't be any pressure in the exercise at all. You know, maybe you'd be able to write, you know, tens or hundreds or even thousands of people. You know, imagine your capacity through email, Facebook and Twitter and so on, YouTube. You know, maybe there's just one person you've reached. Not a problem. And and, and that one would be worth celebrating. But what if the basket simply passes you by week after week because you have nothing to offer? And it might might even prompt you to, to do something more. Might encourage you to offer just one small sacrifice or maybe just hand over one gospel tract to somebody. Leave it somewhere in your week. You know, just drop a piece of paper with the gospel inscribed, you know, and then you can write that one on that piece of paper and put it in a basket and it can be counted out. You know, how much more pleasing might that be to God than our monetary offerings? You know, for the answer to to this, just think only on how many references there are in the Bible to monetary tithing in comparison to those related to the Great Commission. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that in our efforts to proclaim the gospel, we should necessarily be answerable to our church leaders, but I simply want to highlight the fact that because we're not accountable, not even to ourselves, since for many of us it, it doesn't, you know, even appear on our agenda, this whole issue of evangelism. You know, the lack of activity when it comes to Great Commission goes largely unnoticed. And the significance of this is obvious, but there are other consequences as well that are just as concerning. Perhaps one of the most serious is the increase in the spread of false gospels. You know, the Bible tells us that God has set eternity in the hearts of all men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11. Certainly most people, at least at some point in their life, ponder eternity and the meaning of life. 
The notion that we're spiritual as well as physical beings is acceptable to most people. Everyone appears to be looking for something, and for a majority in the Western world, this leads to the pursuit of happiness through wealth, normally, power and success. Yet we need to turn only to those who have their fill of wealth, power and kudos to find them unfulfilled and still searching. You know, we've all heard of Madonna, the singer Madonna, you know, who once told the Los Angeles press conference, you know, in these past few years of intense study of the Kabbalah, I felt an ever-growing presence of the one true light inside of me. She said, I was pleased to discover recently that this presence is the higher being's way of letting me know I'm the Messiah, the chosen one of Kabbalah. You know, Dr. Philip Abramwitz of the Task Force on Missionaries and Cults, a project of the Jewish Community Relations Council of New York, quite sensibly comments, it takes this whole Kabbalah thing out of the realm of Hollywood, fad, and, and places it firmly on the turf of first-class la-la land. Now, I'm sure many of us, you know, <laughs> smugly agree with Dr. Abramowitz, and yet through her powerful celebrity status and funding capacity, many more of the Hollywood fraternity have turned their attention to Madonna's gospel. You know, just as others seek truth and fulfilment in the likes of Scientology, thanks to authoritative celebrity endorsements. You know, such examples might seem extreme, but it's probably fair to say that even in our everyday toils, our normal lives in our streets, our villages, towns, factories, offices and schools, most have some kind of God awareness and are searching for the spiritual. So where do they look? In generations gone by, people in the West, at least, had some kind of grounding in the teaching of Christ. They might have been blighted by tradition, you know, ritual and fear. But there are many testimonies of people who, at a point of true searching in later life, called out to the God of their Sunday school days and found him as their saviour and friend. Amen. Of course, there are many debates to be here about the place of Christianity in modern society. But the question to really consider is what happens when non-Christians don't hear the true gospel? Well, when they don't hear the gospel from Christians, there's an innate tendency, albeit unconsciously, to make up their own gospel. Perhaps a lifestyle, a feel-good, life-enhancing discipline, which in turn they start evangelising. More tragic still, some churches have been unwittingly influenced by such false gospels. There's a grave danger that ideas that have originated and circulated in the non-Christian community are adopted into our churches and accepted as though they're the true gospel. Jesus knew of this hazard, which is why I'm sure he was careful to say, go into the world and preach the good news. He's not talking about just any old good news here. He has a specific message in mind, and that message is clear and uncompromising throughout Scripture. The Apostle Paul also recognised our inherent need for teaching that satisfies and endorses our own desires. In the second letter to Timothy, chapter 4, verses 2 to 4, he gives this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. So what are some of the false gospels that seem to prevail in our society and some of our churches? There are a remarkable number of people who subscribe to a liberal gospel that claims that everyone, unless they declare themselves Muslim or Hindu, Buddhist or any other religion, is a Christian. This closely links with the belief that we're born into a Christian country, therefore we're Christian. Well, no, we're not. I mean, how many people, when filling 
in a, in a hospital admission form, declare themselves Church of England. Similarly, some have been christened as a baby or gone through confirmation or first communion or some other kind of church ritual and therefore believe themselves to be Christian now, even though they might give God very little thought at all. Some believe wearing a cross as a piece of jewellery or attending church at Christmas offers them passage to heaven. Others adopt a fingers crossed mentality or just say a quick prayer and you're in gospel. Equally, there are those who hold the misguided idea that I belong to a particular denomination or my grandfather was a preacher, so I'm saved. You know, then there's the widely held notion that surely all the good I've done outweighs all the bad. So I'll be okay, won't I? Well, no, not really. Not according to the Bible. It's amazing how many people, even devout church attendees, believe in being saved by good works. It's so easy to see where this idea comes from, isn't it? It makes a lot of sense, and Jesus spoke a lot about loving one another and living a good life. But when we confuse this teaching with the biblical message of salvation and our true God-given purpose on this planet, we're in a great danger of missing out on God's almighty provision for us and of plunging into hell, sincerely holding on to a false gospel. You know, someone once shared a powerful analogy with me to illustrate how no matter how good we are or how hard we try, there's nothing we can do to earn eternity with God. Imagine that everyone in the United States is lined up on the shore of California and told that they have to swim to Hawaii or die. There'll be all kinds of people, you can imagine, from all walks of life and many different shapes, sizes and levels of fitness and ability. For a starter, you've got your 500-pound man who can barely walk across the room without getting out of breath. As he begins to walk out into the water, a big wave knocks him over and he can't get up. He gargles salt water and quickly drowns. Then there's the middle-aged man. He used to be a great swimmer. He begins to swim, but it isn't long before he begins to get tired. He practices survival techniques that he's learned in the Boy Scouts and tries to keep going, but eventually the water overcomes him too. Next, there's the girl from the high school swimming team. Now, she's been swimming most of days of her life for the past 10 years and is in excellent physical condition. She paces herself, uh, starting slowly and steadily. One mile, two miles, 10 miles. But soon she begins to get cramps in her tired muscles. She can't go on. She too gargles the salty water and drowns. Following on is the marathon swimmer, who regularly swims the English Channel just for fun. Well, he starts out strongly and steadily, soon passing the 10-mile mark, then the 20-mile mark. At 50 miles, he's feeling the struggle, and it's not long before the waves take their toll. Finally, he succumbs to the power of the water. Although some swimmers are much better than others, there's not a single swimmer who can cover over 2,500 miles all the way to Hawaii. In the same way, even the best person in the world can't get into heaven on the basis of his or her good works. Only God's grace makes a journey to heaven possible. You know, doing good things and being helpful to other people is definitely the fruit of the gospel, but it's not the root of it. Just consider that. It's the fruit, not the root. You know, this good works gospel is just as false as the notion that Christianity is a bed of roses or come to Jesus, he'll make you rich gospel or the Jesus loves you gospel that seems to ignore any need to respond to him through change or sacrifice on your part. Another worrying trend I perceive in some modern churches is what we might call the join the church as a lifestyle option gospel. In recent times, you know, there have been some great work in in changing the face of church. You know, what does your average person in the street think, you know, about when they think about church? 
You know, quite often you'll hear descriptions like cold, stuffy, miserable, morose, judgmental. You know, that's the normal stereotypical view. You know, what a shock then when they're introduced to a vibrant modern venue with state-of-the-art lighting and dazzling PowerPoint greetings and a top-class band blasting over the sophisticated PA system. It's amazing some of these churches that are in the world. Beautiful, well-dressed, smiling people, you know, a testimony to just how good church can be. And a, a soft social calendar of all manner of events keeps everyone securely in the, you know, that happy fold. I mean, forgive my slight air of sarcasm, the fact that many churches have embraced a contemporary, open approach and encouraged relevance and natural expression for the modern disciple is to be celebrated. But there's also a danger here, you know. Um, you know, people can be so caught in the razzle-dazzle of belonging to a caring, vibrant and beautiful community that, that they forget the horror, the degradation, you know, some of the loneliness and the sacrifice that is Jesus on the cross dying for our sins. You know, it's real blood on that cross, real suffering that whispers, come follow me, isn't it? It's easy to preach good news about God, but unless we preach the good news, we're, we're preaching a false gospel. Just the Apostle Paul feared in his warning to the Galatians, if you remember, in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 to 9. He says, as we have already said, so, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you an, a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. I'm sure you'll recognise some of these false gospels that I mentioned here. You know, maybe you're confident you don't uphold any of them yourself, but do you tackle them? Do you seek them out and expose them with the truth of the gospel? the real gospel. You know, when we study these sorts of disturbing truths and meditate on them, you know, big considerations begin to emerge. You know, the reality is that many sincere people will plunge into hell holding on to false gospels because they've never heard the truth. And yet there's no natural or logical reason why Christians find it so difficult to proclaim the truth. It's not as though we can't get access to training on evangelism. I mean, this podcast that you're listening to, you know, you can get training on evangelism anywhere. You know, we've got the World Wide Web, we've got videos, DVDs, YouTube, podcasts, television, radio, satellite, phenomenal graphic design and printing capabilities. What did Wesley and Luther have? They just had a horse, a Bible and the Holy Spirit. It's not as though we lack the finance to do it either. Certainly all ministries struggle. And we could do much more training if only we had, you know, some more funding for if Christians gave more sacrificially. But at the end of the day, lack of money is no excuse if someone has a genuine heart to proclaim or train in how to proclaim the gospel. It's not as though we lack the power to do it. There's no lack of God's power. You know, we read in the book of Acts how the believers were given the Holy Spirit so they could be witnesses in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. And we know that it's the same Holy Spirit that dwells within every true believer today. Is it then that the command is too complicated to understand? Well, no, it's very plain and simple. Go into the world and preach the good news to all creation. Mark 16, 15. And let's face it, there are plenty of people in the world to share the message with. And think about the scale of our mission. There are now nearly nearly approaching 8 billion people on, on earth, overwhelmed. You know, we needn't be. We've Jesus promised to claim, you know, as to claim as our own. I am with you always to the very end of the age, the Lord promises us in Matthew 28 verse 20. We cannot allow fear or lack of resource or low self-esteem or low confidence to stop us. You see, when we consider these issues, it's hard to understand why the Great Commission in the world should have collapsed. 
There seems to be no natural or logical reason why we've come to the point where Christians don't know how or don't believe they need to proclaim the true gospel. However, the more one studies scripture and prays about the situation, the clearer it becomes that driving the collapse of the Great Commission are principalities and powers, and their leader is Satan. And that's quite chilling to think about that. Well, maybe, but we've already highlighted, haven't we, in this series that, you know, we as Christians are in a war. And as we move forward, we should, as the early church has reminded, when we read there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 5 to 9, uh, you know, we are sons of the light and sons of the day. Since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, are we ready to go into battle? Are we ready to rage war in the heavenlies by seizing, seizing the mantle Christ offers? With our eyes open, knowing that the, the souls of our friends, family uh, and other human beings that we come across are at stake. So I just want to challenge everybody to let's move on. Let's look at practical ways in which we can build the Great Commission back into our hearts and back into the church. We hope you enjoyed the message. Please subscribe and leave a rating and review to help others find our podcast. At GCS, our mission is to communicate the gospel message relevantly to every person in the world. One way we do this is by providing practical resources to help you grow in your faith and present the Christian faith across different cultures. You can find out more about our resources at www.greatcommissionsociety.com If you would like to donate to our efforts, be sure to contact us, or you can donate online. GCS is a listener-supported ministry and is chaired by a board of directors in Edinburgh, UK.